Thank you for listening to the New Life Church podcast. If you need any information about our church or if you'd like to give online, please visit us at newlifekingman.com. You should. You know, should the Lord tarry, um, there's a shelf life for me. Amen? And somewhere along the line, uh, the next generation has to take over. Amen? Now, I'm hoping that's a long way out. Actually, what I'm hoping for is we all make heaven home here real quick. Uh, but uh, the reality is, is we always think generationally. And what I'd like to say to our congregation as we begin this uh, service in this moment is this is what every father hopes for, uh, that their children would follow in their footsteps. Throughout the years in our culture, sons would often take on the skill set and the industry of their father. In other words, ranchers would raise ranchers, farmers would raise farmers, mechanics raise mechanics. And that's how we coined the phrases, I believe, throughout the years that, you know, you remember the phrase, he's a chip off the old block, or father like son. Those phrases meant something at that time. And, and uh, at one point in time in history, uh, it was expected that the sons would follow their father, that they would move along in life like their father did. Well, Kathy and I, we did raise our children to be servants in the house of the Lord. Ministry was never my occupation. Ministry was our life. And at a very young age, well, Kathy and I were pastoring before Jason was born, Jason being our oldest. And so even when Jason was a baby, he was uh, in the church. They went to church all the time. Uh, as, as much as the doors were open, and at a very young age, they were actually serving, and reluctantly at times, but <laughs> they were, uh, what, what's the term? Volun voluntold. They were voluntold uh, to do things. They set up more chairs than you can count, and they did all kinds of stuff, but they were really involved in our ministry, and one of the great blessings of Kathy and I's life is that our children Jason, Andy, and Amy have all chosen to follow in the lifestyle of ministry. Uh, and now with the addition of our daughter-in-laws, Shay and Courtney, and, and our grandchildren, uh, we are being continually blessed by the fact that all of them are serving in the house of the Lord. And although our grandchildren are young, it is our hope and our dream that they too one day at some level or another will serve in the house of the Lord. And you know, the amazing thing is, is we never, this is not what we said they should do. In other words, I never went to Jason or Andy or Amy and said, look, you're going to do this. This is what you're going to do. We always encourage them to do what they believe in their heart was right for them. And for years, there was times where they did struggle and they were questioning and they had to mind that out, but this is where they landed. And, and you know what? Through hard work and determination, this is where they've come. And Andrew has worked hard uh, to get to this moment in his life. And Andrew, I am very proud of you. Um, I can't even begin to put that in words. Amen. <laughs> Many of you may know that Andrew has earned his bachelor's degree in biblical studies from GCU. 
Uh, he has worked as the intake director of Jacob's Ladder, and he has served as our youth pastor. And, you know, currently right now, he's not on staff, but he's working in the probation department as a probation officer, and he's doing a brilliant job there. He is becoming an accomplished speaker and minister in his own right. And so it's now time in my mind, in my heart, that we make it official and that we ordain him as a pastor. Andrew, I want you to know that it is great joy in my heart to bear witness to the call of God on your life and to be a part of your ordination this, this weekend. And I am sure that I speak for all of New Life Church to say that we are truly all very proud of you. It has been a pleasure watching you grow. It's been a pleasure watching you become deeper in your spiritual life. And there is no doubt that there is much more to learn, but I know and, and am confident that you will become everything God has called you to be. You will become a responsible, gifted, and gracious leader. And you know what? I really have seen, not only on you, but on Shay as well, the hand of God on your lives for his glory. And there's no doubt that times at, there are times when it's more difficult than others, but I believe that you can face this and you will go through this and you'll become exactly what God has for you. So this morning, what I want to do before we lay hands on you is I want to give you a charge. And the first charge that I want to give you, Andrew, is I charge you to love God. It is the first and greatest commandment, to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And it is that love that you responded to uh, when you first gave your life to Jesus. It's that love that I believe sustained you in what you do. And I believe that ministry must be an outgrowth of the relationship we have in God through that love. And so it is my charge today that you always commit yourself to loving God. The second thing that I would charge you with is that you love his word. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, he says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And again, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, he says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort, and with all long-suffering and teaching, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, and do the work of an evangelist, and make full proof of your ministry. So number one, love God. Number two, love his word. And then finally, Andy, I charge you to love his people. And I would remind you that this commission is a commission that our risen Lord gave to Peter when he said repeatedly, take care of my sheep. Listen, you are going to have unique opportunities to love people and to care for people that many will not. And that love and that grace will change their lives. And so I charge you, love God, love his word, and love his people. And so today what I want to do is I want to anoint you with oil. And as a pastoral staff, we are going to lay hands upon you. And we are going to ordain you to the position of pastor. Father, right now in Jesus' name, I pray, God,
that you would be a part of this moment. Father, that your hand, your anointing, your goodness, and your grace would rest upon Andy. We charge him and anoint him into the position and ordain him into the position of pastor. And Father, we pray, God, that your anointing would fall upon him. God, that your grace would fall upon him, that you would bless him. Father, that you would use him, Father. Give him wisdom and revelation and insight, Father. Give him dreams and visions, God, we pray. Father, cause his well to be deep, that he may water a lot of sheep. Father, we pray that you would speak to him. God, lead him and guide him. Father, we pray for Shay. We pray for Oliver, Father, we pray that this family, God, would be blessed by you and that your hand would be upon them in all that you, they do. And, Father, that you would give them favor right now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Pastor Harry. Lord, the Lord would say unto thee, before you were, I knew you. For I had plans for you, saith God. And sometimes my way is not your way, and my plans are not your plans. But as you follow me, I will raise you up to be more than you ever dreamed. For what I have for you is something that will touch the world. For I say unto you, never look to yourself. But as a couple, you look to me. And the Lord would say unto you, I will raise you up. People will call your name, and you will be able to touch multitudes of people, saith the Lord. For I have called thee, I remind you, saith the Lord, I have called thee before you were. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Well, with that thought in mind, what we're going to do is we're going to give Andy an opportunity to minister to you. Andy, hallelujah. Praise God. If I can. Okay. All right. Here we go. You know, so I uh, let me, I just want to start off by saying, you know, I I grew up in this church. I remember. I mean, my my earliest memories of not uh, my earliest memories have been of church, and, and not just church, but in ministry, like my dad said earlier, of, of helping setting up for potlucks or Fourth of July outreaches, or, you know, I remember when this building was being built, and Jason very graciously pushed me into an eight-foot uh, 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 footer that I couldn't get out of, and they had to put a, a backhoe in to get me out. I mean, there's big footers in this building. And rollerblading in the multi-purpose room when it was just when it was just concrete, and so it means the world to me to be able to be a part of the pastoral staff here at church. And so, before I go into what I'm going to be speaking on this morning, I just want to say, you know, thank you to. First off, I want to say thank you to my wife. Um, I love you. You know that. I love you most. In fact, <laughs> that's a joke between us. Um, she, you, she is my best friend and my anchor, and I cannot wait to see what life looks like for us in the future going down this this road. I want to thank my mom and dad, who quite literally, I would not be here if it weren't for you. That's pretty obvious. But 
through your love, your support, your um, even when I was not lovely, you, you loved me and you, you came alongside and you've encouraged me and I would not be the man of God that I am today if it wasn't for you. And lastly, I, I want to thank you as the congregation for being able to put up with me, <laughs> but also let, I hope that over time that I'm able to earn your both your respect and your trust to be able to be a part of the ministry team here at New Life. And I, this is not a given. This is, I, I fully plan on earning every bit of trust and respect that you guys have. So uh, I just want to say thank you very much. All right. Now. <laughs> All right, so let's, uh, let's get into this. Let me, let me ask you a question. Who in here has some sort of corrective lenses, whether it be glasses, contacts, or for you uh, fakers that use readers because you don't want to go to the do eye doctor, right? I don't know if you're afraid of the poofing in the eye test or what you, you, you know. So the majority of the people in this room have some sort of corrective lens. Well, that majority or that ratio in this room translates across the, uh, across the planet. They know that one billion people on the planet have some sort of corrective lens, right? They believe that three to four adults above the age of 25 need glasses or contacts whether they have a prescription or not. And so I'm, I'm preaching a message this morning of, you know, corrective lenses and you're probably thinking, why in the world are you talking about glasses right now? And that's because I believe that something as trivial or some a, a physical attribute that we can see, touch, hear, whatever, it can be an illustration to a spiritual dynamic. Or it can be an illustration to a spiritual reality. And so much like um, eyeglasses, uh, you know, lenses that we have to fix our eyes, we also have spiritual lenses in which we view people and therefore interact with people. And so when we have glasses or, or lack thereof, we interact with the world differently. So if I, I don't care if you're blind as a bat, if I take my, you know, I'm calling my dad out, but my dad's eyesight is very bad. He'll be the first to admit that. If I take his glasses, he's only going to be able to see about two feet in front of him. So he's going to interact with the world around him very differently without his glasses than with, with his glasses on, correct? So we, my, the point that I'm making is, is that we also have a spiritual lens in which we, th in which we view life. So now with that being said, how many, how many have heard of the term astigmatism? right? Probably some of you have one, but is one of the most common uh, conditions that an individual can have when it comes to eyesight. The definition of astigmatism is a defect in the eye or in the lens caused by a deviation from spherical curvature, which results in distorted and blurred and or blurred images as the light rays are prevented from meeting at a common focus. So if there's a physical, uh, if there's a physical astigmatism, 
man, I went through the entire first service saying just stigmatism, and then my wife comes up and goes, babe, it's astigmatism. So if I trip up, I know. So that being said, anyway, if we have a physical astigmatism, we also might have a physical astigmatism, a spiritual astigmatism. So why? So so let me ask you this question: Why why is this a problem? Well, we live in a culture right now where perception is reality. Right? We are engulfed in a culture where, whether it be Christian, whether it be you know secular, non-Christian, whatever, where it is it is common it is commonplace that your perception is reality. So don't bother me. What this looks like, it's like, hey, don't bother, bother me with facts. Don't bother me with data or statistics. Or hey, don't bother me with scripture. My mind's made up. No matter facts is going to change my mind. And so with this being the case where perception is reality, as a church, we may fall victim and run the risk of falling short of the mandate that God has placed on our life. You're probably asking, what mandate is that? It's found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says that all authority has been given unto me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the mandate on every single person who calls themselves a believer in Jesus. So if that's the mandate, back to our physical illustration, there's two types of physical stigmatisms. There's there's a stigmatism that deals with your cornea, where your cornea is more like a football, and then there's another one that is where your lens, lenticular stigmatism, where your lens and how how light comes in is more like a football shape. Well, with spiritual stigmatisms, I believe there's a lot more. We're not, going to view, we're not going to talk about all of them. I'm just going to highlight a couple that I believe really affect our lives, both as believers or, or not. I believe the first astigmatism that we are constantly having to deal with is culture, right? Whether that be social media, mainstream media, Hollywood, books, blogs, uh, political affiliation, I don't care on which side you're on, that's not my point, is, is that no matter where you find yourself on the spectrum, if you only allow that to be the input in your life, it creates a blurred lens in front of you so that anyone on the other side of that Without interacting with them, you've already prejudged them and are going to interact with them based on a certain way. Just like if I take my glasses off, I'm going to interact with the world around me in a particular way. When we have a cultural astigmatism, we are going to interact with those who don't, who don't look like us in a different way. The problem with that is, is the church for a lot of years, has, if you didn't look like us, we're going to disassociate with you because we're afraid that your, your ickiness is going to get on us. The problem is we're, we cannot disassociate. We have to associate and love. But we're going to get, I'm, gonna, I'm jumping ahead. We're, we're going to get into that here in a minute. Second is emotional wounds. These create an emotional or a spiritual astigmatism, whether that be rejection, abandonment, grief, betrayal, 
violation, the feeling of being unloved or, or not getting love from the people that are supposed to love you most, hopelessness, these are just to name a few. All of these emotional wounds cause us to treat others from a distorted or blurred perspective. Number three is insecurity. Now look at insecurity, what I mean by this is my perception of your perception of me. That's compounded. I am thinking you think this about me. I can't, I, I can't read your mind. So I am making, I am interacting with you based on what I think you think. Am I wrong? So when we have this spiritual stigmatism of I'm going to interact with you based on what I think you think, I may think you think that I'm not good enough. I may think you think, that's a really hard to say, just so you know. <laughs> I may think that you think that I'm not smart enough. I'm not educated enough. I'm not qualified. Oh, I'm too young. I'm too old. How is it that we can have people who literally sitting right next to each other think I'm too young and I'm too old all at the same time? Then when is the ideal age? I would love to know this information. Four, someone said 40. I'm like, dang it, man. Anyway. I think the four, uh, yeah, I know, I'm 10 years away. 10 years away. Four, number four, is shame. Shame creates a spiritual astigmatism. So we may think, once again, this is kind of compounded with the insecurity. I may think you think, oh, well, they knew you when. They knew you when you insert space. They knew you when you were still addicted. They knew you when you they knew you when you were with your first husband or wife. They knew you at the first bankruptcy, the first time your business closed. All of these things go into our mind. Therefore, we interact with the people around us from that perspective. Well, they if they only knew what I've done. Or they were there when I did the things I did. They're the victim of the things I did. Or they just simply know I've made too many mistakes. And see, all of this is compounded with the fifth stigmatism. And there's nothing saying you can't have all five. You see how this can compound and get worse and get worse and get worse if unaddressed. Number five is fear. What if all of these good people in here found out what I used to be? What if they knew? What if they saw a glimpse of my past? I wouldn't feel loved. I wouldn't feel accepted. I would... And then the shame comes in, and then the insecurity comes in, and then the emotional wound comes back in. And then culture comes back in and says, see, they don't love you, they don't accept you, 
find somewhere else to go. This all compounds. What do you get when you start compounding lenses? You get a laser. If you compound enough lenses and point it at the sun, you can put an aluminum can on it and it'll burn a hole right through it, right? My dad did it. He had a giant telescope, and him and my grandpa used to do that all the time. When anything is focused, it can either be very constructive or destructive. So when we look at these spiritual astigmatisms, which these are distorted lenses that we're viewing life through, they can and will destroy relationships with people that we are called to love and to serve. Now, while this may be understandable, it is not acceptable and excusable for those who call themselves believers. Now, let me make a disclaimer. Let me make this disclaimer. I, by no means, am saying if there is someone in your life or in your past that has abused you, hurt you, violated you, anything like that, I am not saying you need to go be their best friend. I'm not saying you have to have any interaction with them. I'm saying don't allow their bad decision to have any control or power over your life. Don't allow their bad decisions to rob you of positive, healthy, loving encounters with the people around you. That's too much power. They don't deserve that right. Let me just, I just wanted to give that disclaimer. But that's a whole other sermon. Again, much like physical astigmatisms, the solution being corrective lenses, spiritual astigmatisms have a spiritual corrective lens. The Bible provides the spiritual corrective lens on how we are supposed to view and treat people. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, wow, you are an amazing revelator. The Bible is the answer. That's, I would have never thought. <laughs> Hang on. What I'm saying is, is this. Mike, am I giving you a hard time? I'm moving a lot. I'm sorry, bro. I want to unpack that statement a little bit because I know the broad statement of the Bible, obviously. But Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 and 40, if you have your Bibles, you can open to that. If you haven't already, I know I put it up on there. So Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all of the demands of the prophet are based on these two commandments. Okay, switching hats. Bible teacher, okay? When you're studying the Bible, there's something very, very, very important to remember, and that is context. Right? So there's varying types of context when you're studying the Word of God. One is the Scripture itself, surrounding Scripture, Scripture before, Scripture after, the paragraph that it's written in, the author who wrote it, the audience who it was directed to, the testament it was written in, and then the entire context and message of the Bible. Then there's two others that go beyond just the whole Bible. It is the historical and cultural context in which these things are being said. 
Because if I say something, how many know words change? Words and meanings change, right? So I could say something is sick. Some of you are like, all right, get him to the hospital. Others are like, all right, sweet, what is it? Same word, completely different meaning. So we need to know what the historical context in which this statement or these statements are being made. First off, this passage is being, is a response to a question a religious leader of the time asked Jesus. In verse uh, 35 in the same chapter states, one of them, an expert in religious law, other translations say lawyer, tried to trap him with a question. Teacher, which is most important? Which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? See, this, was, this question was coming from a man who knew the answer. You ever ask someone a question, no, full well knowing the answer, you're just trying to test the waters of seeing where they're at? I do it, do it all the time with my son. It's great fun. He forgets, I see, and number one, he forgets or probably doesn't know that I was a mischievous seven-year-old boy at one point in time as well. There's a lot of people in this room that could attest to that. So, when Jesus was asked this question, it wasn't because they didn't know the answer. They wanted to trap him so they can accuse him and they can ultimately kill him. Because he was disrupting their lifestyle. See, this was, coming, this, was, this was a question coming from a man who was part of the Pharisees, who was part of the religious elite at the time. The, the religious elite, they got to, they, they weren't just part, they didn't establish the rules and regs for religious practices. They were also the head of the social hierarchy as well. And so they got to enforce or create bureaucracy and problems for everyday people. And so when Jesus says, and Jesus looks at him and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, they're like, okay. He doubles down on it. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, wait a minute, Jesus. I don't, I, don't, I don't know about that. Because this was going to a Pharisee, and in, the, in, the, in, in verse 34, it says, a group of Pharisees gathered to hear Jesus preach. So even though, how many were ever volunteered to ask the teacher a really dumb question? I didn't really volunteer. I usually just did it on my own. But this guy was like, oh, I got him. Watch this, guys. Hey, Jesus. No. I don't know where I was going. And so he knew the answer. And so Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And he's saying this to a Pharisee who openly was prejudiced against Romans, Samaritans, Gentiles, anybody unclean, anybody with a physical affliction, anything like that. You see countless experience over and over and over again of I mean, they got mad at Jesus for healing a man's hand who was shriveled just because it was on the Sabbath. 
So this shows you the context of the people he was talking to. So he says, okay, you can love, G- you can love God really, really well. You follow the law really, really well. But in, where am I at? There we are. But then he doubles down and he says, uh, this is the first and greatest commandment. And second is equally important. He says that in verse 39. He emphasizes the equally important part. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then, and what I love about this is in verse 40, he kind of, you know, gets the last haymaker in. And he says, the entire law and all of the demands of, your, of the prophets stop. The entire law and all of the demands of the prophets were what these guys were about. Everything they did was to fulfill the law and the demands of the prophets. He goes, look it, you love God, but you're missing an element. You're missing the love you're supposed to have for your neighbor, for the Samaritan, for the Roman, for the Gentile. That is what you're missing. And it is equally important of loving God to love people. And when you do that, you will then love and you will then fulfill all of the law and all of the prophets. When you look at the, old, when you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four deal with loving God. The back six deal with loving people. So he's not changing anything up. He's adding clarity in which we are supposed to interact with people around us. We are supposed to love them and I'm jumping ahead. So you might be thinking, okay, great. All right, I got to love God. I, I, I got that. I got to love people. Got it. How? Well, I'm glad you asked. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 through 7. Now, the moment I said 1 Corinthians, you probably are like, oh, the love chapter. Yes, it is the love chapter, and I believe... You know, the, the love chapter has been kind of appropriated by wedding planners. I think we had it our, at our wedding. But the reality is, is in this, in this text, it's not just talking about love in a romantic way. It's talking about love in the way that we are supposed to have for the people around us. It says in verse 1, it says, Though I speak with tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I have become the sounding of brass and a clanging cymbal. So here's the thing. I could preach a killer word. I could preach a barn burner, all of this stuff. I can do a really, really good job. But if the motivation behind what I'm doing is not love, I become white noise. He uses a very specific imagery in this. Brass and clanging cymbals. Well, if I'm doing that all day long, it's, I'm going to get tuned out. We live in a very noisy world already, and if we, look at there is very few people in the Western culture who haven't heard something about Jesus. I'll give you that. He may not be being, he may not be being properly represented. But I would, ha- I would have a very hard time believing that there would be people who have never, in the Western world, who have never heard the name Jesus. So what does that mean? That means that you and I going out and telling people how awful, wicked, and dying and going to hell they are is not going to help. Especially if the motive is not love. Me going up to a dude in a pit and going, hey, man, you're in a pit. 
sakes. I know this. My job as a Christian is to get down in that pit and help them out, especially if I've been in it before. Number two, and though I have, I'm sorry, uh, verse number two, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. You may have spiritual knowledge. You may have an understanding of the word of God. You may be even able to operate in the supernatural and see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. But if you are not loving, it is pointless. This is Paul. This is not someone who hasn't seen a miracle or two. This is Paul who has not sacrificed. In, number, in, in verse number three, it says, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, I, and, but not love, it profits me nothing. This is, not, this is a guy that has literally been shipwrecked. He's been beat up. He's been locked into a prison, and an earthquake happens, and all the gates open, and he convinces everyone to stay. Because if they leave, they kill the Roman centurion. This is not a guy who doesn't know what he's talking about when it comes to being able to minister to people in various forms. He's saying if, you are, if love is not your motivation, what are you doing it for? Is it to be right? Is it to, be, is it to have a check mark in religious activity? Because if that's what it's for... We're falling short, church. We have to love people. So what does love look like if it doesn't look like preaching or giving my body or, or, or giving my things? Or, Well, I'm glad you asked that too. The question is, is what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Sorry. That was for you, Mike. Number, uh, verse number four, love suffers long and it is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not speak uh, its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, desires, uh, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. And so as I begin to describe what love is, I just want you to take an emotional inventory of your life. Because by no means am I condemning, by no means am I sitting here saying, you know, you bad person because you don't love like this. What I'm saying is, is I want to be a mirror so that we can, myself, so that I can start evaluating and saying, hey, you know what, God, am I loving the way that you have called me to love? Am I loving my community around me? Am I loving people who don't look like me, who don't think like me, who believe like me? Because Matthew 5.44 basically says, he goes, you've been told to hate your enemy and love your neighbor. But I tell you the truth. I say love your enemy. Pray for those who actively persecute you. And he goes on and he starts saying, he goes, you say that you love your neighbor, but even pagans do that. You love people who, have, who bless you. Well, even everybody does that. 
Jesus did not die so that we can do what everybody does. Jesus died so that we would be lifted up to a higher standard. Not to over, not to lord it over people, but be, to be a light so that we can draw people unto him. Paul says that it is his love and kindness that draw men unto repentance. I think we're missing the love and kindness part, church. Because we're too enamored with this idea that we have to be right. I can love you. I can love you and not care about being right. So the Bible said this love is patient. It's long-suffering. It doesn't fold under pressure or stress in a relationship. It copes with difficult times. Love is not in a hurry and it's not demanding. It doesn't vary with every wind of circumstance, difficulty, or change. Number two, love is kind. It's considerate, considerate, benevolent, gentle. It speaks to people in a healing tone. Love is generous. It doesn't get en- it doesn't envy or get jealous, but it freely gives. Freely we have received, therefore we freely should give. Number four, love is humble. It doesn't act rashly or out of control, puffed up or proud. Love keeps us, our vision in perspective. It shows us when to, be, when to stand firm and when to be flexible. It's not boastful, arrogant, or overbearing. It doesn't power grab, control, or demand authority. Love is courteous. Love is not irritable. Got a big problem with that. It is not easily annoyed. Got a big problem with that. Love is not overly sensitive. Love is not overly insensitive. Love does not take offense quickly doesn't return evil for evil. It doesn't allow anger to cloud our better judgment. Love is calm, tranquil, peaceful, and serene. Love delights in the opportunity to love someone who may be unlovely. Love is willing to get our hands dirty. There's a story in the Bible of the woman with the issue of blood. And in that culture, if you were unclean, you had to shout, unclean, unclean, unclean. That way people can not touch you. Because if they touched you, they would have to go through ritual cleansing. So this woman touched Jesus and she touched him and the Bible says that virtue left him and she was made whole. And, he, and he's in this crowd of people, everybody's on top of him, thronging him and he, he turns around and he says, who touched me? The disciples kind of looking at him and go, Jesus, there's a whole bunch of people here, they're all touching you. He goes, no, 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 no. I felt virtue leave from me. 
in that culture, she could have been stoned because number one, she was in a crowd touching others. And number two, she touched a rabbi. But because she was unclean and she touched the author of cleanliness, she was made clean. We live under that covenant church, so we have, the, we have the authority and the ability to go out into the world, into the unclean, touch them, and they be clean, and not worry about us getting dirty. I think too many times that this, this hand sanitizer generation has kind of gotten onto the church a little bit. We're afraid to go out and love people with no agenda, just simply loving them. Love, lastly, is powerful. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. There is no limit to its endurance. Love never, never fails. So you might be thinking, because I thought this when I wrote it. (laughs) Okay, well, that's great. That sounds great. You're going to preach. This is going to be awesome. But how am I going to do that? And, and, and I and you would be right. It's too much. You might be sitting there thinking, I can't do that. It's too much. I don't, you don't know the people in my life. You're right. You can't. It is too much. And no, I don't know the people in your life. But 1 John 4, 16 says, and, I, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. My wife used to say all the time, I'm totally ripping her off, you're literally seeing it. This happens a lot. She just doesn't get credit for it. That every every experience of love is an experience of God, and every experience of God is an experience of love. So what that means is is that when we when we are loving people, it's not our love that is going out; it's His. We abide in Him, and because He is love, all of that what I said of love is generous, love is humble, love is kind, you can insert God. God is kind, God is generous, God is patient, God is powerful, God is righteous. Is righteous. So when we, in, when we abide in him, it is not our love that is coming out. It is because we are attached to the love-er. It is not an attribute of him, it is what he is. He is love. Therefore, when we want to do these things, when we want to love the people around us, we have to be connected to Him so that we can love others the way that He is mandating. In our our scripture, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. The problem with the English, English, English language, if I know how to speak it, is I can say I love Shay, I love Mike, and I love tacos right? All same word, different meaning. 
But the Bible uses different love. The same, the, the, the love, he says, love the Lord your God as the word agape. So that means it, it is a specific love that, that is reserved only for God. It is a divine love. It's the same word in John 3, 16. It says that for God so loved the world. But yet you would think because Jesus is saying, now love your neighbor as yourself, he would use a different love because it's not towards his neighbor. It's not, it's not towards God. Same word. So he's literally saying the way you love God is the way I want you to love people. One can even, I don't think it is a violation of the scripture to say that the one of the factors of the equation in which you're measured, you're, the love you have for God is measured is by how much you love people. Meaning, how much you love people is going to come into, into the equation when asked how much you love God. Church, we are called to love Him and the people around us. So why, what I want to do, we're going to close in, in a song. And this song is literally my favorite. And, it's ta- and it talks about our Father in Heaven and His will on earth be done as it is in heaven. It is our job to pull heaven down so that people who are far from Him can experience His love. You, you, you know this, you may be the only representative of Jesus someone may have in their life. I used to say this in youth all the time and they always used to look at me really, really weird. You, you're Jesus with skin on. They would ask me, like, Jesus doesn't have skin? I said, no. You are the flesh and blood Jesus representative of the people in your life. Church, let's not waste that opportunity. So why don't you bow your head? We're going to stand. We're going to get into some, we're going to get into worship. So, Father God, we thank you for what you're doing in this place, God. God, this is not an easy task that you have given us. It is not an easy mandate to love people who are unlovely. And it's okay because you know what? We were unlovely at one point. But because you sent your son and we are redeemed and we are loved, we get to now show and be that representative of who you are. We are an ambassador of heaven. So right now, we stand on that truth. We pray, Lord, that you give us the courage, the strength, and the wisdom to be able to love those who are around us. We thank you for what you're doing in and through this place. In Jesus' name, amen.
Father, that you would move in this place, God. Father, that you would touch people, God. Minister to them right now, Father. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you for this word. We thank you, Lord, that you show us, God, how to live our lives. And we do pray, God, for you to move in our our lives, God, right now. And Father, we thank you, Jesus, and we give you all the glory and all the honor and all God's people said. Amen and amen. Amen. Our worship, or I should say our ministry team is going to come up real quick. They're going to come up. If you need prayer of any kind, they will pray with you. Come on up. They will minister to you. We want to release everybody. Remember, we have a Good Friday service on Friday at 6 o'clock. And then uh, Resurrection Sunday. Amen. Come out and be a part of that. Hallelujah. We look forward to seeing you. God bless you guys. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the New Life Kingman podcast. We can't wait to see you next week.